Good morning, CHD. It is March 11th, Saturday, and I am back with James Corbett. We're going to talk about the WHO, the international health regulations, One Health, animals, meat, food, and the vaccination of animals, which might be used to vaccinate people who eat the meat. So let's bring on James and I'm gonna let him start talking about the international health regulations and the meetings that were held um, in aid of these two documents that we've discussed before, and then I'll jump in later. Thank you. James. That's right, thank you, Meryl. Thank you for having me on. Good to be here, good to be talking about this issue because uh, as you know, and as hopefully the people who've been watching our monthly conversation know, I think we originally came together here on a monthly basis to be following what the World Health Organization is doing with those two documents that you mentioned. And we can't reintroduce the entire history of those documents every time we talk about them. So please, people, go back and watch our previous conversations about them. But just in a nutshell, there are two documents that are being discussed right now that may be woven into one gigantic thing or something like that. There's the amendments to the international health regulations, which is already woven into the fabric of the WHO, but they're talking about amending that. They're also talking about an international pandemic treaty which they're not calling a treaty. It's a, an agreement or other document or whatever they're calling it in order to not call it a treaty because treaty brings with it certain legal ramifications, etc. Anyway, those are the two documents that they are working on in separate groups that will merge and work together and may come up with separate documents or one document. Again, people, please watch our previous conversations if you're just entering this story in the middle and have no idea what we're talking about. But I did want to, at the very least, put on the table the latest developments with regard to this, because some uh, there's been a couple of big meetings since we last spoke. Specifically, there was the second meeting of the Working Group on Amendments to the International Health Regulations 2005, which took place on February 20th to the 24th. And this is a phrase that I want people to note, be aware of, maybe uh, keep write it down, make a note of it, because as I made a point of stating on my... Um, uh, my Solutions Watch uh, series recently, there are magic words, i.e. there are these phrases that most people won't know because they're jargon that aren't spoken of by the general public. But if you know these special phrases, you can enter them into search bars and even controlled search engines like Google and whatever and still find relevant information. Um, the search terms haven't been polluted. And so one of them is working group on amendments to the international health regulations which is a renaming of the Working Group on Strengthening WHO Preparedness and Response to Health Emergencies, which is what this group used to be called. Now it's called Working Group on Amendments to the International Health Regulations, and it's working exclusively on considering these amendments to the IHR. So they had their meeting on the 20th to the 24th of February, and at that meeting, they began consideration of the more than 300 proposed amendments to the IHR, and uh, which are related to 33 of the IHR's 66 articles and five of their annexes, as well as six newly proposed articles and two new annexes. And the full set of documents is going to be linked up. I'm going to provide a link to the, uh, the WHO page on this second meeting. But as it says in its write-up here on the WHO website, the WGIHR, uh, will first agree on the proposed modalities of engagement for stakeholders in document blah, AWGIHR23, and the proposed modalities for consideration of the proposed amendments in document blah, blah, blah. The WGIRH, which I think they mean IHR, they can't even spell it right on their own page, will then begin consideration, consideration of the proposed amendments as part of a plenary meeting held in open session during a first reading. And this first reading will be open to WHO member states, associate members, and regional economic integration organizations, as well as to relevant stakeholders, which uh, they note as agreed by the WGIHR. So they get to decide who is a relevant stakeholder. Spoiler, I don't think that involves you and me, Meryl, or anyone listening to this conversation. Um, it is expected that the WGIHR will invite relevant stakeholders to provide their views on the proposed amendments to the IHR, which is another trick which I am about to detail in a questions for Corbett I'm about to record, um, on the Delphi technique or the Delphi method, 
which people should look into. It was originally developed uh, by the Rand Corporation in the 1950s as a form of forecasting um, by soliciting feedback from different experts um, separately and then combining and, and seeing how the, those, um, what kind of consensus can emerge out of those forecasts. It is now used as a type of almost like a, a mind control mechanism or it, at any rate, a way to shape a process exactly like this amendment working group um, on the uh, international health regulations, whereby don't worry, we're soliciting your viewpoint. We wanna get the, all of the information and feedback from the uh, relevant stakeholders. But what they do is they say, here are the amendments. Now, do you think this amendment uh, should be done this way or should it be done that way? Or something along those lines. They give you a bunch of false choices to make you feel like you are involved in the process so that they can come to their pre-arrived conclusions. And nothing you can say in that process will actually deflect the fundamental nature of, hey, maybe we don't need these international health regulations in the first place. That will not be part of their multiple choice uh, tests that they're offering here. Anyway, it the document goes on to say, um, that the group will then continue its consideration of proposed amendments in the drafting session, which is limited to WHO member states, associate members, regional economic integration organizations, the Holy See, and Liechtenstein as states, uh, parties to the IHR that are not member states of the WHO, and the observer delegation of Palestine, blah, blah, blah. Basically, what they're saying is the relevant stakeholders, you know, don't, don't worry, the public will be involved in this process. They get re removed when the actual drafting of the, um, the amendments goes down. Anyway, the entire webcast of all four days of all four sessions of this meeting are there on the WHO website. I have uh, not had time, <laughs> let alone the, uh, the stomach, to sit through these, uh, the, this webcast yet. But hey, there's a research project for people in the crowd who uh, are interested in this. Watch through the session. I'm sure there are things that are in there that are probably interesting and relevant that should be brought to our attention. So um, many hands make light work and many eyeballs make light viewing, I suppose. So I hope people will take up that task and start watching through these webcasts. I'm sure it won't be exciting, but I'm sure there will be things in there that are worth knowing. Anyway, the write-up uh, about this meeting and what took place there um, from reclaimthenet.org, World Health Organization pushes for global vaccine passports. Surprise, surprise. So they go on to talk about this particular session of the working group and the proposed amendments which give the WHO new powers to declare potential health emergencies and include commitments from member states to recognize the WHO as the coordinating authority during certain types of health emergencies. They also outline how the WHO intends to use its new powers to push global vaccine passports when it declares potential or actual health emergencies. Uh, the current version of the IHR already allows the WHO to issue recommendations to review proof of vaccination, require vaccination, and implement tracing of contacts of, su of suspects or affected persons. However, these proposed amendments to the IHR greatly expand on the existing recommendations and lay out a framework for digital vaccine passports and other forms of digital tracking. New text has been added that allows member states to require documents containing information for a lab test in digital or physical format and information on vaccination against a disease. Another amendment states that documents containing information concerning travelers' destination should preferably be produced in digital form with paper form as a residual option and suggests that this will be used for contact tracing. One amendment paves the way for other types of proofs and certificates which may be designed by the Health Assembly, the WHO's decision-making body, and will be used to attest the holder's status as having a de decreased risk of being the disease carrier. These other proofs include test certificates, which provide proof someone has been tested for a disease, and recovery certificates, which provide proof someone has recovered from a disease. Not only do these proposed amendments to the IHR push uh, for post-COVID vaccine passports, digital proofs, and digital certificates, but they also state that vaccination certificates should be considered approved when the WHO has declared a public health emergency of international concern, the fake that we've talked about before. And there's a scenario of voluntary vaccination using products still at the research phase or subject to very limited availability. Additionally, they mandate that digital health documents incorporate means to verify their authenticity via retrieval from an official website, such as a QR code. 
And it doesn't end there. These proposed amendments also lay out a minimum and maximum scenario for the data to be collected via this proposed vaccine passport and digital certificate scheme. At minimum, the WHO wants vaccine, test, and recovery certificates to contain a person's name, national identity number, passport number, type of vaccine, vaccine batch number, date of administration, place of administration, and an official stamp. In the maximum scenario, the WHO wants these digital certificates to contain all of the data from the minimum scenario, plus a person's vaccination history and a QR code that supports the retrieval of vaccination information. So we see the headlong rush into the, the framework. This is the infrastructural framework for what will be the digital ID that will soon be every aspect of your life and every interaction you have with government and the banking sector will be rolled into a digital ID. And this is this is how they're going to institutionalize the, the framework for it. Um, in my ever-to-be-humble opinion. Uh, it goes on to say in this article, the WHO intends to adopt these proposed amendments under Article 21 of the WHO Constitution. If the amendments are finalized, member states will be given due notice and have a six-month window to reject them before they come into force. The WHO Constitution doesn't state how many votes are needed to amend the regulations, which I find interesting in and of itself. But according to SWP Berlin, a research institute that provides guidance on foreign and security policy, WHO regulations have a lower voting threshold than conventions, like the international treaty they're working on, which need a two-thirds majority vote. If these proposed amendments get to this stage, many of the votes will be cast by diplomats who are appointed and not elected, a process that contrasts with the usual democratic legislative process where elected officials vote on laws that affect their constituents. Well, take that as far as you can throw it. But anyway, the point is there. This will be elected diplomats. And does anyone think that anyone um, who is uh, of significance, shall we say, in the WHO power structure is going to put up much of a fight to this? I'm not holding my breath on that. But now we come to the other meeting that took place recently. Uh, the fourth meeting of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Body, the INB, for a WHO instrument on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response, aka the Global Pandemic Treaty. And again, for people who don't know about it, please see our previous conversations. But it does note in uh, on the WHO website, the fourth meeting of the INB, INB4, um, will take place, did take place, from 27th of February to 3rd of March. And they note that the INB uh, considered the zero draft of the inst instrument, which we looked at last time, uh, developed by the Bureau of the INB following widespread consultation, and they will confirm whether the zero draft will be the basis of negotiations for a pandemic accord during this meeting, and if so, initiate an in-depth chapter-by-chapter discussion of the document. It is proposed that the discussion of the zero draft start at this meeting and continue during the fifth meeting of the INB, which will be held from the 3rd to 6th of April, so just before our next conversation, right? And the INB will report on the process of the development of the accord at the next World Health Assembly, the 76th World Health Assembly for those keeping track at home, which will be held in May of this year. And uh, it goes on to say that this first reading of the zero draft will be open again to WHO member states, associated members, regional economic integration organizations and relevant stakeholders. And then that it will go into the drafting group group, which exactly exactly the same as the uh, the uh, IHR working group. Once it gets to the drafting phase, relevant stakeholders disappear from that picture. And once again, exactly like the other meeting, there is a webcast of all four sessions of this meeting that took place last week. So uh, again, lots of information there. And once again, there's a good summary and write-up from reclaimthenet.org, so why not? I'll read from that too. WHO moves forward with plans to target misinformation, infodemics, through international pandemic treaty, in which they note that the zero draft of this uh, treaty empowers the WHO to target so-called misinformation and disinformation via Article 17, strengthening pandemic and public health literacy. Uh, specifically, WHO member states are instructed to tackle false, misleading misinformation or disinformation, including through promotion of international cooperation and manage infodemics through effective channels, including social media, which for those who don't know, infodemics is that term that the WHO has invented in recent years to describe too much information 
including <laughs> false or misleading information, but not limited to false or misleading information, I guess. Uh, true information could be part of that. In digital and physical environments during a disease outbreak. Um, additionally, Article 16 of this proposed treaty, whole of government and whole of society approaches at the national level, recommends that WHO member states collaborate with non-state actors and the private sector when carrying out their obligations under the treaty. As the treaty has progressed, it has faced increased political pushback from elected officials in member states, with U.S. Republican senators recently introducing a bill that would require the treaty to be approved by two-thirds of the Senate. Interesting. But despite this pushback, the, the Biden administration committed to the international pandemic treaty on the first day of the recent WHO meeting. <gasps> surprise, surprise. Uh, if the treaty passes, WHO member states will be required to raise financial resources for effective implementation of the treaty and commit to allocating at least 5% of their annual health expenditure to pandemic prevention, preparedness, response, and health systems recovery. Additionally, the treaty tells member states to commit an undisclosed amount of their gross domestic product, their GDP, to international cooperation and assistance on pandemic prevention, preparedness, response, and health systems recovery. This equates to billions of dollars in annual expenditure for many WHO member states and hundreds of billions of dollars per annum for some. Ka-ching, ka-ching for the WHO mafia. Anyway, those are just kind of the latest updates on this process. The latest meetings have taken place. I will be including the uh, the in the, the links uh, to those meetings, and they have the links to the documents themselves and the webcasts and the, uh, the write-ups that I was reading from. Um, but basically, it's proceeding apace, and they are looking to get this hardwired in. We will start to see the real teeth of this this year, and they are really going for it for April of 2024, I think, at the next next year's uh, uh, WHO Health Assembly. Yes, sorry. I was just trying to figure out what 5% of the U.S.'s health budget was going to be. We, our, our total spending on health is about $4 trillion a year. And so many, many billions would mm -hmm. go to um, this pandemic preparedness nonsense. In fact, um, Congress has already allocated $5 billion to it in the National Defense Authorization Act, which got passed in December. Nobody had any idea that included in the funding for the Defense Department was um, another bill called Inter International Pandemic Preparedness, subtitle D, um, this subtitle may be cited as the Global Health Security and International Pandemic Prevention Preparedness and Response Act of 2022. Um, what I, I, there's a lot of interesting things in this act. One is that they are building on a process that got started in 2001. What happened to that? The anthrax letters and the uh, Twin Towers. And I said at the time and since that the, um, those two events were used to justify an enormous increase in spending on uh, biodefense, which we now call pandemic preparedness. And it's very interesting that this global health security agenda has been moving forward for the last 22 years. You know, I've explained that the U.S. has probably spent roughly $200 billion during that time on what was termed biodefense. A lot of that money went into gain of function. You know, Fauci was given uh, by the Defense Department uh, a portfolio to do biodefense studies within the NIH, within NIAID. And... Um, this happened, oh, I'm not sure, two, 2012 or 2014-ish. And Fauci was given a huge bump in salary, like a, like an extra 100000 or something like that, to take on this biodefense portfolio in addition to an ordinary disease portfolio that he had before. So now you start to wonder, you know, ooh, the, now we're in the Great Reset. Were they getting ready for that? Was this whole 
pandemic treaty and IHRs, was it really in their minds going back to 2001 that this was a mechanism by which we would try to gain the world? All right, so back to this document. It says the term global health security agenda means the multi-sectoral initiative launched, this is another one, launched in 2014 and renewed in 2018 that brings together countries, regions, international organizations, non-governmental organizations, and the private sector to elevate global health security as a nation level priority to facilitate national capacity, um, to comply and adhere to, adhere to, that means obey, the international health regulations and the guidelines and standards established by the WHO and World Organization for Animal Health. Okay, so they're all they're they're already putting in this deal about animal health because the choice of the globalists is to blame all pandemics on spillover from animals. Um, that then gives them jurisdiction over animals. Yes, I think what you have highlighted there is incredibly important. Um, I want to hear more about it, but yes, let's let's put a little asterisk on that um, animals coming under the purview of health because I think that is going to be extremely important uh, going forward, not just for ourselves on a personal level, but in terms of the structure of the entire food supply and the uh, food industry. In section 5561, they point out that particularly this pandemic preparedness is going to involve strengthening vaccine readiness, reducing vaccine hesitancy, and delivering and administering vaccines. So that's a big part. And then um, they're very interested in specifically the One Health approach. So the One Health approach, we have to strengthen diplomatic leadership and the effectiveness of U.S. foreign policy and international preparedness assistance for global health security through advancement of a One Health approach and other relevant frameworks that contribute to pandemic prevention and preparedness. So remember, one health approach. That's going to be important as we as we go forward. Sorry, it's an 18-page uh, bill here. The sense of Congress, it is the sense of Congress that it's essential to enhance the capacity of key stakeholders to effectively operationalize early warning and, listen to this, execute multi-sectoral emergency operations during an infectious disease outbreak, particularly in countries and areas that deliberately withhold critical global health data and delay access during an infectious disease outbreak in advance of the next infectious disease outbreak uh, with pandemic potential. What they're saying is the United States reserves the right to send their troops or their infectious disease doctors or whoever they damn well please into another country when they decide that the other country isn't sharing information properly. Um, and, I mean, this could start a war. This this is a craziness. Um, they want to identify and transparently communicate varying levels of risk. So uh, the United States is also saying, because these documents allow the director general of the WHO to specify whenever there's a public health emergency of international concern, which would then give him the right to run public health for the whole world. But um, there are no standards in any of the documents we've seen so far as to how he would make the decision to declare one of these emergencies and how he would end the emergency. And as we know, he hasn't ended it for either monkeypox or COVID. So there's, there's no off-ramp. Um, but what this document says is that the United States is going to help him decide how, how, when and how to declare one of these things. In other words, he's going to take orders from us and um, uh, where it, it specifies we can execute cross-sectoral emergency operations. You know, if a nation doesn't agree with what the WHO says needs to be done about some outbreak that somebody decided is happening within their territory. Um, there's a lot of pages in here about money. There is a financial entity that has been created by the World Bank, the WHO and others. And all the people in the world who are working on this are very interested in 
getting huge amounts of money into that entity. And so we've promised $5 billion over the next five years, but also we've given the Secretary of State the option to designate more money whenever that person wants, and all they have to do is announce it to Congress. Um, there's one part of this that is particularly worrisome, and that it's under authority for United States participation. Three, enforceability. Any agreement concluded under the authorities provided under this subsection shall be legally effective and binding upon the United States in accordance with the terms of the agreement upon enactment of appropriate implementing legislation that provides for the approval of the specific agreement or agreements, including attachments, annexes, and supporting documentation as appropriate. Then they go on and say some other things, but basically what I think they've snuck in there is the fact that the United States is, is bound by whatever agreements are made at the WHO, whether they're called attachments, annexes, supporting documentation or, or treaties or whatever, that they shall be legally effective and binding upon the United States. Um, that And Francis Boyle says he's never seen this in a treaty before. This is something new and that the people who drafted this knew exactly what they were doing. I think that's it. Those are the those are the important, most important points from this 18-page bill on pandemic preparedness that is already US law passed last December. Yeah. That's with nobody knowing point. as part of a thousand-page bill. Yeah, absolutely. And I thank you for drawing our attention to this because I hadn't seen that particular part of that document either. So um, extremely important and extremely important to know that it has already been passed. It's already hardwired into law. I pick up four things from what you mentioned. Number one, the money, the money is issue about this. There is no doubt there is a gigantic monetary boondoggle that is happening right now. We saw the preview of that in when we were discussing the latest WHO moves with uh, member states will commit 5% of their annual health budget to international pandemic preparedness and response and all of that. Yeah, again, how many billions and billions of dollars to be made there? But throughout all of this, and the U.S. is doing it legislatively in the NDAA anyway, so it's already happening there. They're just going to start committing the other WHO states to doing what they're already doing, which is ka-ching, ka-ching for big pharma manufacturers and everyone associated with the biosecurity industry. It's the exact same sort of monetary headlong rush that we saw in the early 2000s towards the homeland security state and all of the apparatus for, uh, for creating homeland security and safety and all of that um, that was happening at that time, it was a gigantic boondoggle. It was even called out by Colin Powell at the time, the homeland security industrial complex or whatever he called it. Um, yeah, it's happening now with biosecurity. But it's important to note when we point that out, yes, there is a gigantic monetary boondoggle happening right now. And the money is not, it, it isn't the agenda. The agenda, I think, is not fundamentally about money, but money is the way that you bring all of these players to the table. All of these countries can get on board when they see ka-ching, ka-ching, you and your cronies can benefit tons from this, guys. So this is how they get those players to that table. And then how do you enforce these things? Because, of course, the WHO has no intrinsic enforcement mechanism. It's a, it's a treaty and agreement, but, you know, states can come and go. Legally, they're committed to, you know, giving notice and there's a big whole rigmarole around trying to withdraw from the WHO and all of that. But in reality, any government at any time could say, we're done, we're out of here. And what are you going to do? Start a war with them over WHO? But actually, maybe yes, because it turns out, yeah, as you're pointing out there, the enforcement mechanism of this will be things like the US, which is committing in its National Defense Authorization Act to essentially being the military enforcement arm for the WHO and enacting point number three that I was going to bring up, that that idea that we saw Bill Gates floating a year, year and a half ago in his uh, new book on how to prevent the next pandemic, where he was talking about, we might need to start a pandemic firefighter team that will be able to jump into any location around the world at a moment's notice with their vaccines or whatever else we arm them with um, in order to fight outbreaks in places where they can't do it themselves. Well, we see what that looks like in legislative reality. Essentially, it's going to be U.S. military and its adjuncts are going to be 
more than willing to be that pandemic firefighter team um, to go into any place that they declare at any declared health emergency that they want in order to enforce whatever the WHO is trying to do, which is, again, how the WHO gets its teeth, because it has no teeth by itself. It needs something like the U.S. military to be its um, its bodyguard. And then uh, the fourth point I was going to raise was, uh, as you noted towards the end there, the the end run on the safeguards, uh, the constitutional safeguards in the U.S. and many other countries. Don't worry, guys. There, no treaty can can um, subsume the the Constitution. There, don't worry, guys. It's all taken care of. Oh wait, but what if what if the Congress passes its legislation and gives it sense that well, anything that's the the WHO says in any agreement or document or whatever, we will follow. When the government pledges itself to do that, well then it's hardwired into legislation and uh, it will be harder for a, a subsequent administration to, to overturn it, even if they wanted to. And I'm not holding my breath for any uh, true political um, uh, pushback on this from within the left-right system. I think there will be political theatrics around it. And to some extent, sometimes theatrics can play out in a good way, but fundamentally, who is really against the boondoggle that's going on here? I'm not holding my breath that it's the uh, traditional politicians that have gotten us into this mess. Anyway, well, it's incredibly important to know about this document. So thank you for bringing it to our attention, Meryl. Yeah. Um, in terms of whether we can expect much from our politicians, we actually had a hearing today in the House um, regarding the origin of COVID. And um, so there was a slight amount of fireworks where Redfield, who was the former head of the CDC, said no he thought that gain of function had never gain of function research had never led to any useful drugs or vaccines that he knew of but he thought it did cause the greatest pandemic uh, the world's ever seen so that was good but in fact the the and now all the, the funding will be removed right <laughs> <laughs> right the, the chairman of the subcommittee though used this whole thing at the end as an excuse to spend more on the biosecurity agenda, yeah, right? Exactly. Oh, right. this, this pandemic is terrible. Agenda. Although it should, in theory, why are we giving all this money to these people? It should raise that question, but I think it's going to be used to underline the biosecurity agenda. And it also provides a convenient excuse for further demonizing China in what is a long-term game plan to as a roll-up towards World War III. Uh, this is not this is not a happy scenario. I, I, I'm glad these issues are being raised, but um, again, within the controlled political system as it exists, I don't think we're going to be steered in a helpful direction with this. Let me move on to One Health. So One Health is a, a concept we've discussed before in which um, it is claimed that the health of humans cannot be considered uh, by itself, but we have to place humans into the context of the ecosystems they're in, the plants around them, the livestock, and even the wild animals, and even the waterways and oceans. So everything in the world then comes under the purview of One Health. And it, it's a concept. A couple of people made it up about 20 years ago. And then the CDC jumped on it about 10 years ago, and it was announced at Davos. And in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of money spent, okay? So, so there is now a group of uh, mostly veterinarians and public health people around the world, a few doctors, but not too many, who um, all are on the One Health bandwagon because they've been given money. And so everybody's uh, who are on the bandwagon been trying to find a reason to justify its existence. And um, there has been research to try to show that by using the One Health approach, which whatever that really is, because it's not well-defined, um, using the One Health approach, they want to show that you save money and you get better outcomes, but nobody's been able to show that yet. All right. Well, The Lancet, which is the world's most uh, read, probably, medical journal, comes out of England. It's been around since the, I think, early 1800s. Um, it showed itself to be under Richard Horton, who is the edit editor-in-chief, showed itself to be um, a pawn in the whole COVID and reset scenario. So they published a fake article, completely fabricated article on May 22nd of 2020 uh, about the fact that people who took 
uh, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine in hospitals around the world had about 30% more mortality than those who did not. They, they had to pull that article after 13 days because it was, so, uh, it was such an obvious fabrication, but they held tight for 13 days trying desperately to maintain it because it had been advertised all over the world as the, the be all and end all of why we need to get rid of hydroxychloroquine for COVID. Um, then the Lancet created this Lancet Commission uh, run by Jeffrey Sachs. Yeah, they were supposed to advise. You know, I mean, I don't know who created them. The Lancet created them. You know, no real entity with any power created them. But these groups of international uh, scientists got together and created reports about what should have been done in the pandemic, and a lot of it was again, you know pushing this biosecurity agenda, pushing the, the natural origin of COVID, and the idea that all pandemics stem from spillover from animals, you know, cross-species transfer of disease from animals to humans. That is the narrative that the whole concept of their global security is based on. The Lancet published a bunch of their pieces. The Lancet has, has done other, a lot of other bad things, you know, fake articles against the use of I ivermectin, etc. Well, in January, The Lancet published a series of articles about One Health. Then they concluded with an edit, a one-page editorial, and you're not going to believe what this says. But remember, this is built, this has now been baked into law in the United States that we are to use the One Health approach. And it is baked into the pandemic treaty and the international health regulation amendments. So listen, One Health, a call for ecological equity. The notion that the well-being of an individual is directly connected to the well-being of the land has a long history in indigenous societies. The One Health high-level expert panel defines One Health as, quote, an integrated unifying approach that aims to sustainably balance and optimize the health of people animals, and ecosystems. It recognizes the health of humans, domestic and wild animals, plants, and the wider environment, including ecosystems, are closely linked and interdependent. So how could effective adoption of One Health improve global health security? One Health goes way beyond emerging infections and novel pathogens. It is the foundation for understanding and addressing the most existential threats to societies, including antimicrobial resistance, food and nutrition insecurity, and climate change. Modern attitudes to human health take a purely anthropocentric view that the human being is the center of medical attention and concern. One Health places us in an interconnected and interdependent relationship with non-human animals and the environment. The consequences of this thinking entail a subtle but quite revolutionary shift of perspective. All life is equal and of equal concern. For example, providing a Growing global population with healthy diets from sustainable food systems is an urgent unmet need. It requires a complete change to our relationship with animals. The EAT Lancet Commission, this must be another one of their, you know, created out of thin air groups, takes an equitable approach by recommending people move away from an animal-based diet to a plant-based one which not only benefits human health, but also animal health and well-being. One implication of a One Health approach is the need to reduce human pressure on the environment. And then, of course, they say this is a non-paternalistic and non-colonial approach. This, this is another uh, one of the magic words that's coming up now is, is One Health is anti-colonial. And I guess that's designed to get the Africans in. So at the end, 
In the last paragraph, this editorial says, by taking a fundamentally different approach to the natural world, one in which we are as concerned about the welfare of non-human animals and the environment as we are about humans. In its truest sense, One Health is a call for ecological, not merely health equity. So there you go. The animals are, are what we're going to, the animals and the environment now, under the guise of health, under the guise of the WHO, under guise of the North National Defense Authorization Act, the animals now have to be um, considered equally as with people. And we don't know what that means, but that me it's going to be used as an excuse, <laughs> some other excuse to control us. And uh, I'm sure James has plenty more to say about it. I do. And this, this is such a broad and important issue that, Meryl, if nothing else, I hope that our conversations at least get the one health approach idea on people's radar, because I don't see a lot of people talking about this or acknowledging it. And I don't think they understand how far along this already is, let alone where this agenda is really leading. Maybe we need some sort of snappier title for it. It's the it's the one hell approach is uh, <laughs> like where, we're, where we're going with this, because it is... It's truly insane. And you get glimpses of that insanity at times. You might remember a few years ago, there was a, a court case that was raised, well, in, in the U.S. Uh, courts of a monkey had uh, taken someone's camera or something and taken a selfie with it. And <laughs> PETA became a litigant in, on behalf of this monkey, arguing in court that uh, they... The, the monkey had copyright of that photo. And it was a stupid, ridiculous case. Um, the court ruled that PETA did not have standing to be a friend of the incompetent litigant. But um, actually, they did argue that the uh, animals can have standing under the Constitution, under Article 3, to bring lawsuits. And it sounds like just some sort of silly kind of case. But actually, this is part of an, a sort of growing movement on the, in the animal rights world to actually give animals and wildlife standing in court to sue. And who's going to actually do the lawsuit? Well, not the animals. Oh, I guess, I guess we'll have to represent them. And who's we? And that's always the question, right? Who gets to speak on behalf of nature? So drawing nature and the environment into these legal human issues and then saying, oh, you're thinking anthropocentrically. You're thinking like a human. No, you have to think like a... A, a weasel or a ferret or a, a snail or something. It's ridiculous. It should be laughed at if it weren't so scary for what it implies. Because of course, again, what is this about? It is about a political agenda that is being pushed legally um, by various entities that have their own vested interests in what the animals say and what the animals think. And animal health is your health. Um, again, this is it's designed to play on our heartstrings as people who presumably do care about wildlife. We do care about the environment. We do want to protect nature. But what does that mean? And what does that mean legally? And who gets to decide health? Again, it all comes down to that definition of health and who gets to define it and in what way. So for people who don't quite grasp how, how insidious this agenda is and how it's going to reach into every aspect of your life, I'll bring up something that I was talking about recently on my questions for Corbett, where I got a question in from someone who was confused. He'd heard something about mRNA va vaccines being mandated for livestock in Australia, maybe, and maybe America, Canada. I don't know. Can you sort it out? So I went through that in that questions for Corbett and looked at where it stands right now in terms of its legal mandate implementation. Not, not yet, but it is being fast-tracked and developed in various places, including in New South Wales, in Australia. Um, the hilariously the fact check is is australia mandating these mrna vaccines for livestock the fact check says oh this is a debunked claim from some weird twitter account that's just claiming it and then they link to the actual new south wales government press release that says we are fast tracking mrna vaccines for livestock so yeah they haven't mandated it yet but they are definitely all on board and can we imagine it's not going to be approved once uh, they deem it to be worthy to be injected in livestock but in the course of that episode, I pointed to an interesting document I came across. It's from something called the Livestock Research Innovation Corporation. Here's another research task for budding researchers in the crowd. Look up the LRIC and who it is and 
what it does. Uh, it's about pages, interestingly vague, but essentially this is an obviously an industry funded created group that is essentially advocating for farmers and uh, ranchers and beef industry in in uh, Ontario, I think specifically, but Canada generally, presumably. And they had an interesting th uh, document up from September of 2021 called The Future of Livestock Vaccines, in which they're talking about these new developments, these wonderful new developments in vaccines that the COVID-19 pandemic has unleashed upon the world, yay, um, from the old type of modified live vaccines, live attenuated, gene-deleted, virus-vectored vaccines versus the non-living vaccines like DNA plasmid vaccines and alpha virus replicons, aka RNA vaccines. And in that discussion, they lay some of these cards out on the table. They say, for example, the health of the herd and flock plays a huge role in the profitability of production, but also in the environmental foot footprint and in food safety. Good health starts with biosecurity. Of course, they have to say that, mm. right? However, disease will always be an issue for livestock producers. Treatment can be effective, although there is rising concern regarding the use of antimicrobial products and the rise of antimicrobial resistance, AMR. Vaccines present less of a risk to the future of animal health than antibiotics and treatment medicine with no AMR threat. Further, there is a growing understanding of the need to view livestock health as highly intertwined with health of humans and the environment. This concept is called One Health, of course. Refer to LRIC's One Health white paper for more information on this subject. Oh, thank you. Uh, new technologies, for example, mRNA and artificial intelligence, will have dramatic impact on the availability and effectiveness of vaccines available to producers. Artificial intelligence has been used to accelerate drug discovery and identification of molecular determinants of mi microbes needed for vaccine development. In addition, new genomics, proteomics, and transcriptomics techniques have allowed identification of potential proteins that can be utilized for uh, development of vaccines. Finally, CRISPR-Cas9 technology is a powerful system in regards to understanding molecular and cellular biology of disease-causing microbes and how hosts respond to microbes. Having a comprehensive understanding of host-microbe interaction will pave the way for development of novel and more efficacious vaccines that are cost-effective and easy to deploy. This can mean great things for the future of livestock vaccines. Yay, wipe that the sweat of anxiety off your brow. Uh, the current COVID-19 pandemic has taught us many lessons, including the fact that the development, mass production, and approval process of vaccines could be shortened from several years or decades to eight to nine months. This will have a significant and long-lasting impact on how livestock vaccines are produced and deployed in the future. It is now in the realm of possibility that a vaccine be developed and tested against an emerging pathogen of livestock and be deployed in the face of a global outbreak. Yay. So a few things to note from this, one of which is, as we've talked about before, part of what we have just lived through is the precedent setting uh, for the 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 new phase that we've entered into in human history where, you know, approval process and all of this stuff, ah, you know, it's an emergency. It's an emergency. It's an emergency. We can get it out in eight to nine months, I tell you. And pretty soon they'll have that down to a few days. And, uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting wild world that we live in at that point. But secondly, you will note how all of these new brave new technological improvements like CRISPR Cas9 technologies, which Oh, by the way, as if you type CRISPR into the Corbett Report search engine, you'll find a lot of reports that I've done over the years on that CRISPR technology and how it is not the surgical precise gene editing technology that it is claimed to be, um, as I'm sure our well-informed listeners will already know, but there's a lot of information on that. But how these types of technologies will be ramrodded through in the name of the One Hill approach, as in yes, your herd is responsible for your health and you're responsible for their health and blah, blah, blah. And the way to keep them healthy, well, there's all these antimicrobial products and what have you, but no, now we've got to switch to vaccines. So they use a real problem, which really exists, antimicrobial resistance and all of that. Yeah. And then they give you the false solution of, well, let's vaccinate everything with this new mRNA technology, right? And the real question here is, of course, you are what you eat. And how is how are these vaccines either right now or in the development in the future 
going to affect the food supply itself. And hey, look, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. I haven't done the research into this. But it just seems to me that, yes, I, I, I'm sure that it's not going to be a straightforward thing of you vaccinate the livestock, you eat the, the food that comes from that livestock, you get vaccinated. I'm sure it's not as straightforward as that. But at the very least, the real possibility, as even Moderna admitted, the DNA vaccines can genetically alter the recipients of those vaccines and the growing realization that mRNA vaccines can have similar um, effects through re reverse transcriptase processes. Uh, what does this mean for the future of livestock, for the future of the food supply? Do we know what we're eating? Are we at least allowed to know what we're eating? Will there be proper labeling? And hey, guys, you can decide what food you want to eat. Again, I'm not very hopeful that that's going to be in the cards unless people make it an issue. And unless people take the time to, as all it comes down to over and over again, and as I know we you talked about in the uh, Attack on Food Symposium, growing it yourself and or knowing people who grow it is going to be increasingly important um, so that you can actually know what is going into your food because otherwise pretty soon we're not going to. And as you've also, also said, the USDA, the FDA, these other organizations are going to increasingly take over the biosecurity of the health of the herd um, in order as, as essentially a jurisdictional grab, because now we have to mandate what does or does not go into the livestock. So this is a huge issue. And I hope people are paying attention to this um, because it, pretty soon you're going to be eating stuff. You have no idea what you're eating. In fact, you already are, <laughs> but it's going to be even worse if they get their way with the one hell approach. Yeah. So, you know, the antimicrobial resistance is very, very interesting because it's the only thing, as I mentioned before, it's the only issue that really could justify a one health approach. Okay. But the reason there's antimicrobial, so much antimicrobial resistance, because 80% of the antibiotics that are, you know, sold in the United States go into animal feed. And in the older days, a lot of that was fluoroquinolone. So uh, antibiotics like Cipro, Ciprofloxacin, which I don't know why they allow this because it's very easy for um, animals to develop resistant bacteria to fluoroquinolones. It, it doesn't take many mutations. I think maybe it's just two mutations, but it's easy. Um, a few years ago, finally, the you know, the, because antibiotics have been in animal feed for about 60 years, um, FDA said you can't use fluoroquinolones anymore unless the animal's sick, but they still allow the, the use of other antibiotics. And primarily, it turns out it's, it's antibiotics like doxycycline or erythromycin, azithromycin. Um, and, and these are old antibiotics. Um, so there isn't going to be quite as much antimicrobial resistance, but still when you're feeding on animals in CAFOs and um, in addition to the fact that they're exposed to all this junk because they're not out on pasture, um, the antibiotics apparently cause them to grow faster. So you make more money. And, which what, and what that means is is if there's a technique that allows a, a, a rancher to make, or a CAFO owner to make more money, they have to use it basically, because if they don't, they will be outcompeted by the other CAFOs or the other ranchers, right? And they will go out of business. So once you have these, you know, dreadful techniques for making more money, Everybody, just like, you know, bad mortgages. If a bank didn't give out bad mortgages in the early 2000s, they would have gone under. So what's happened is, you know, FDA allows the industry to continue to use the antibiotics. The antimicrobial resistance persists. And now there's an excuse to vaccinate the animals with more vaccines to avoid the, the using more antibiotics and more antimicrobial resistance. Um, so it's all very, it's very crazy. Um, on the food um, symposium that we did last Saturday that is will remain up on the Children's Health Defense website and we will individually separate the talk so it'll be easier to find the ones you wanna go to. Um, Bonnie Mallard, who is a professor at the University of Guelph in, in Canada, gave a talk about animal vaccines and about a uh, about minute 
14, she talked about the mRNA vaccines that are being developed for animals. And I believe that there is at least one already on the market. Um, so this is something to be concerned about. She pointed out that the regulation of animal vaccines is much, much looser than the regulation of human vaccines. There's no, um, uh, no system for collecting adverse reactions in animals as there is at least VAERS in humans where you can report an adverse event after a vaccine. There is no, no such system like that for animal vaccines. She noted that um, a bad vaccine was given to sheep and killed two million sheep, two million before they figured out it was the vaccine. You know, this is really unconscionable. Um, so things to be aware of. The other thing um, I learned at the food symposium is that the federal government, the USDA does not allow states to let us trade meat among ourselves. So I, uh, you know, if I were growing animals, I could not package and sell parts of those animals. Even if I took them to a, uh, an approved butcher, um, un unless they had been inspected federally and unless they had been vaccinated according to federal standards. So if I wanted to cleanly raise animals on my farm in pasture, you know, one animal or two animals where they're not going to catch anything from anybody else, the USDA will not allow me to sell their meat unless I go through their process. And they've made it essentially, you know, almost impossible. There are very few butchers in my state. There are, I think, less than 10 of the approved butchers and, and processors that, that the uh, farmers and ranchers can go to. Um, so transporting the animals becomes very expensive. And this has cut down the production of yes. meat. Yes, um, it's important for people to understand this. Absolutely. Th this is a cartelization of an industry and the big meat packers and butchers and all of these, it's it's a big cartel. They want the club and they don't want you in it. For people who don't know about the history of the FDA, specifically the Food and Drug Administration and how that came about, um, at, on the back of the public outrage that was whipped up by Upton Sinclair in the jungle and how that actually played into the hands of the meat packers and actually consolidated their control over the industry. It was good for them. They, they wanted that regulation because it got their competitors out of the way. If people don't know about that, type in Upton Sinclair's The Jungle into my search bar on CorbettReport.com. I have a podcast about that. The history of it is exactly opposite to what most people think. Sinclair came along, raised the problems of the meat industry, and, and the government came, swooped in to save the day. No, they swooped in to save the meat packers and their the, their cartelization of the industry. What we're living through is, you know, 100 plus years of indoctrination that people think that we need the government to be the stewards of this process, when in fact it's the government that is really cementing this cartel into place. Yes, exactly. Um, someone said that Maine, uh, you know, about a hundred years ago produced 90% of the food that's eaten, you know, in the state. And now I think it's less than 10%. Mm -hmm. So um, big problems and the addition of One Health is not going to solve them, but is going to, uh, you know, assert rights of the ecosystems and the plants and the animals um, again, to, to assert more control over us. So I guess we're getting to the end. Any final thoughts? Uh, tons of stuff to think about, but uh, I hope people will go through the show notes. As always, this is about the research that we're doing. We're trying to bring it to people's attention. So the, the important point is all the links that we're getting to help share those around. You don't have to share my stuff in particular, just take the information and get it out there. I think the real solution to this is going to be people becoming aware of these issues and working together on them. So I hope that's what we can do is raise a bit of awareness to these issues. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, it's interesting. Bad information came out over the last couple of weeks that final decisions would be made at these two meetings. And some of the alternative news media in the US were pumping out stories about that. And they were incorrect but they got a lot of people upset and a lot of people started paying attention. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is the first time I've realized that fake news can actually be useful. Um, mm -hmm. 
So I'm hoping to build on that um, uh, upsurge of interest now and and keep providing information. I'm I'm going to try to get a press release out about these One Health documents from from the Lancet and uh, um, the Epoch Times has started writing articles about this and um, they're they're going to still they're going to continue to be interested and produce some more articles about the WHO documents and the, and the whole, how this, you know, relates to the reset. So um, thanks for bringing that up. We, it's really important. Tell any, any media sources that, you know, if you know, journalists, whomever, that this is a hugely important topic that the, the national, that, already enshrined in U.S. law are some of the, um, per, you know, provisions of the um, IHR amendments, and uh, we got to stop this. And we have to, we have to learn to say no, you know, I will not comply is, has to be the new motto. So again, thank you for uh, a lovely hour of discussion, and I will see you next month. All right, let's do it again. All right, great.